Let us have another word of prayer. Father God in heaven, as we begin to investigate this topic of what's so important about the investigative judgment, may you be with us, Lord, that you will lead and guide us, that we may have a better understanding of this very, very important topic, and that our hearts and our minds and our faith may be set upon the rock of our salvation. For there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved but that of Christ Jesus and through his work that he is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. We ask now that you will be with us, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you remember the trial of Saddam Hussein? <laughs> I only see a couple of hands going up. This was like the biggest trial of the age, and I only see one person that's heard of this, of this thing. Right? It was one of the most powerful world leaders who was tried. Was he not? Right? And the scene has become so familiar to those of us that lived in North America. Unrest in the Middle East, terrorist bombings, people who were con connected with the case, mysteriously disappearing, and tension in the courtroom. The world was focusing its attention. You getting me? The world was focusing its, its attention on these arguments, and the nation was gripped and enormed by, by what was going on. The news, we had the, there was the news from the media, there was the, the cameras taking the cap, captivating scenes that made, made us in the U.S. feel like we were there. And when the final judgment was given, Saddam Hussein's future was sealed on this earth. And this was the trial of this young century, one of the greatest trials of this young century. And it has gripped the minds of millions of people. But today... Today, I want you to lift your eyes from earth, not to the trial of the century, but to the, the drama of the ages. Lift your eyes from the earthly courtroom to the heavenly one and to the books of Daniel and Revelation. Over the years I've been in ministry, I've heard a lot of people's ideas about the judgment. Some have said, well, 1844 was so long ago. What does it have to do with us? And some have even said it doesn't matter, does it? Right? But what do you say? You may have heard a question before about what does the investigative judgment have to do with me, do with the gospel? Have you ever heard that before? None of you have heard that before? Or what, what has this gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone, have to do with anything? Where does the investigative judgment fit? Has anyone ever heard that? Well, you guys got to get out and start doing more Bible studies. I'm telling you, because there, there's people are asking these questions. Some of, some, of the, some of you will say, well, Jesus did it all at the cross and it's finished, right? You know, I was doing a study with someone one day and we were going over the 2,300 days in the investigative judgment and they asked me, why would God need 160 years to judge someone? He's God. He should be able to do it like this. Then they would ask, what has Jesus been doing since 1844? What has he been doing since 1844? Where are we going to, we are going to be covering this in the next two sessions to find out what exactly and where exactly Jesus has been since 1844. Early writings, page 50. It says that I saw the quick work that God was doing on the earth would soon be cut short in righteousness and the message must speed swiftly on their way to search out the scattered flock. An angel said to me, are all messengers? Another answered and said, no, no. God's messengers have a message. You can't be a messenger without a message, right? 
And we have a message, a very, very important message. Early Writings, page 63. There are many precious, precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. What does the flock need now? Present truth. And I have seen the danger of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. Satan will here take every possible advantage to injure the cause. When you start getting yourself tied up in all these offshoot ideas, you're taking away from the message of the present truth that needs to be presented for this time and for this age. It continues to say, but such subjects as the sanctuary in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is. Establish the faith of our, the doubting and give certainty to the glorious future. These I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. What was she saying we should be dwelling upon? The sanctuary and the 2300 days connected with the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You follow me? And these are the things that we need to find out. What was the faith of Jesus? You know, we dwell a lot about the commandments of God and not about the 2300 days. So often, even in our evangelistic series, we don't dwell enough on the, on the 2300 days and the investigative judgment. And these are the very subjects that we need to be dwelling upon today. In Great Controversy, Port, page 488, we covered this in the last class, the last session. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All, all need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith, which is essential at this time, or to occupy the position which God designs them to fill. That's why it's so important for us to understand these topics. Great Controversy continues, says, every individual has a soul to save or lose, and each has a case pending at the judgment bar of God. Each, how many? Each one of us. You get that? Each one of us has a soul pending at the judgment bar of God. In a letter, number 208, 1906, the correct understanding of the ministry, menstruation in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. What is the foundation of our faith? The correct understanding of what Christ is doing for us in the heavenly sanctuary. So this pre-advent judgment, for, we find in Revelation 14.6, where does it say, let's turn there, Revelation 14.6, instead of me just commenting on it, let's read it. Let the word of God speak, amen? Revelation 14, verse 6. says, and I, what? I saw another angel in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel, the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people. It's a worldwide message. Saying with a loud voice, the loud voice signifying urgency, with a loud voice, for the hour of his judgment is coming in 2012. The hour of his judgment 
has come. And worship him that made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. The second angel message follows in consequence of the first angel's message and the third because of the second. The first angel's message in Revelation 14, 6, and 7 is based upon Daniel 8, verse 14. The book of Daniel is a prophecy and Revelation is an opening up of that prophecy. In our next session, we're going to get very, very, very involved in this. Great Controversy, page 410. The scripture which above all others has been both the foundation and central pillar of the Advent faith was the declaration. On to 2300, 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. All right? These have been familiar words to all believers in the Lord's come, soon coming. And by the lips of thousands was this prophecy being repeated as the watchword of their faith. It goes on to say in Great Controversy, page 410. These prophetic days has been to, to terminate in the autumn of 1844. Hello. Daniel prophesied on the coming judgment hour, and Revelation says that that time has come. Without Daniel 8.14, there would be no three angels message. You follow me? Without Daniel 8.14, what would there not be? Three angels message. And this is, meant, this is what is meant when Daniel said in 8.14, is both the foundation and central pillar of our movement. And we find our movement in Revelation 14. Where do we find our movement? Revelation four, verse 14. In Great Controversy, page 423, it says, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Patriarchs and prophets, patriarchs, prophets, apostles spoke of the future judgment. Yet the Bible says that when Jesus comes, he will bring his reward with him. So, you know, th there's this contrast and this confusion that about the judgment. And John speaks of the time just prior to Christ's return when he had said that the hour of judgment has come. Of the seven phases of judgment, there's a committal of crime, right? Have you ever looked at a courtroom? You know, first of all, there has to be a crime, right? In order for there be a, to be, a, to go to court, all right? So there's a committal of a crime. Then you have the charge and the accusation. The trial, which includes evidence presented and evidence weighed. Then you have the verdict. Then the sentence, the execution of the sentence. And the executive phase begins at Christ's second coming. That's what we're told in Jude, chapter, uh, Jude, Jude 14 and 15. And Paul tells us that when Christ returns, the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. So the presentation of the evidence is only a portion of the judgment process. You following me? And this is the portion in which all the evidence is investigated. How much of the evidence? All of it. And this phase, along with all the others prior to the executive phase, must take place before Christ's second coming. The judgment is according to the things written in the books. How many of you knew that everything that you think, everything that's on your heart, and everything you do even in secret is written in a book? Did you know that? It's kind of scary, isn't it? It's a complete package at least, right? <laughs> Let's go to Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verse 3. Where is it being written? Philippians 4, verse 3, it says, I entreat thee also 
true yoke fellow, help those women which labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with the others, my fellow laborers, whose names are written in the book of life. And the same thing in Revelation 3, 5, we get the same view of this book of life where all the good deeds are written. In Malachi 3.16, we see that there's a book of remembrance. In Psalms 56.8, the tears were written in the books. In Nehemiah 13, verse 14, there's a book of deeds. In Great Controversy, page 480, it says, The book of life contains the names of all who have ever entered the service of God. Keynote here. What does it say? All who have entered service of God. Are you serving God today? Because if you're not serving God today, then your name is not written in the book of life. You follow me? You know, there's three evangelist, evangelistic-oriented churches in the world today. Can anybody tell me who's, what churches those are? And let me give you a little hint. They all came up out of 1844. You have the Jehovah Witness? Seventh-day Adventists, and Mormons. What makes them so unique? Their outreach, their mission. Because they each think they have a message that's important to share. But do you know what the sad thing is? And that what I've noticed, because I, I'm a Bible worker trainer, so I, I beat the streets, all right? You know that the Jehovah Witness and Mormons are out there more than we are. And we have the truth. What's going on? It's because we are not connected with the messenger and we're not excited about the message to give. That's why it's so important for us to go out and give the message because people are going to accept what's brought to them at their door. And if it's a Jehovah Witness, they're going to accept that teaching. And I can tell you, I've studied with Jehovah Witness. Their message is our message turned upside down. Literally, everything that they teach is opposite of what we teach. They have a completely different twist on the, on the, on the Gospels and the same thing with the Mormons. Why? Because the devil has invented, has bought these, these, found these churches up to be a counterfeit to God's true message. God was raising up a movement, and the devil tried to raise up counterfeits to, to counterattack counter the movement of God. And that's why it's so important for us to enter the service of God. Or else our names are not written in the book of life. In Great Controversy, page 480, in the book of God's remembrance, every deed of righteousness is immortalized. There, every temptation resisted, every evil overcome, every word of tender pity expressed is faithfully chronicled. And every act of sacrifice, every suffering and sorrow endured for Christ's sake is recorded. The secret purpose and motives appear in the unerring register. Behold, it is written before me, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord. Isaiah 65, verse 6 and 7. And opposite each name in the book of heaven is entered with terrible exactness every wrong word, every selfish act, every unfilled duty, and every secret sin with every artful, dissembling, skillful attempt to disguise or conceal our sin. Wow. That is serious. You know, Martin Luther... I, I love studying history, and I would advise the youth that are in this, in this class to study the history of the Reformers. Martin Luther has a story in, in his, in it, about his experience. He was so tormented over his sin. 
And every night when he would go to sleep, the devil would appear to him. And the devil would open up this scroll and hold it in front of Martin Luther. And he says, you're not saved. Look at all these sins that you've committed. And it troubled and tormented him so much so that he would even go as far as beating himself, to thinking that that was the way to purge sin from him. And finally, when he, when he was converted and changed, that dream came back again. And when the devil stood there, Martin Luther looked at him and says, move your hand. And the devil shook his head, no. And he did it again, said, move your hand. And the devil said, no. And then in the third time, Martin Luther said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to move that, your hand. And as soon as the name of Jesus Christ was mentioned, the devil got flushed and scared and dropped the paper and ran away. And when Martin looked down at that paper, the record of his sins, in ink was written, the sins of Martin Luther are cleansed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. His sins are forgiven. You see how important it is, friends, for us to come to Christ, for us to, to bring everything in to the sanctuary. Heaven sent warnings of reproofs, neglected, wasted moments, unimproved opportunities. The influence exerted for good or for evil with its far-reaching results are all chronicled by the recording angel. So the things written in the books are compared to God's Ten Commandment law, the standard in the judgment. And what I'm trying to do throughout this class, this, this class session, is to illustrate what's going on right now in the heavenly sanctuary. What is, what is taking place about the investigative judgment? What is he investigating? All right? Because it's, it's important for us to understand. You remember the quote we just read just earlier? The 2300 days and the investigative judgment are the very things that we should be dwelling upon. So this evidence that God has is an impartial judge. This is the evidence that God is an impartial judge, all right? That everything is recorded and he uses the standard to judge people by his law. Judgment begins at the house of God, we're told, and the day of atonement was understood to be a judgment, not of the world, but of God's professed followers. The world was condemned already. You follow me? The judgment isn't for the world, it's for his people. That's why it says judgment comes to who first? The house of God. All right? The judgment begins at the house of God. Unfortunately, I don't have enough time to cover the little horn power. And everybody understand the little horn and the power? That's, that, that's the whole reason why Daniel 8.14 came. Why, how long is this, this power going to trample upon God? And it says on the 2300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And the same thing in Daniel chapter 7. And then we see this view of, of a judgment and, and Christ receiving a kingdom. And we're going to cover that in the next session. So it must be kept in the mind that in the closing scenes of the great controversy, there are two rival systems of salvation, Christ and the Antichrist. God's law, government, character are all in question. Now consider a government wanting to establish a contract with an auto manufacturer to, to supply vehicles to government workers. There are two rival manufacturers, both, both claiming to have the most reliable automobile. So the government buyer must investigate to find out who the best manufacturer really is. All right? So he, he can investigate the manufacturer themselves. He can't. He can investigate the manufacturers themselves, but the most accurate way to find out who is really the best manufacturer is to investigate their end product. Right? You following me on this? Okay? The vehicle themselves is what they want to investigate. Okay? 
So the owner, if he's confident that the product is really the best, will not only permit the investigation, but encourage it, would he not? If you have the best product, wouldn't you want it to be investigated to show and prove that you have the best product? All right? So he'd encourage you to kick the tires. He may say, slam the doors, feel how, how solid it is. Get behind the wheel and take it for a drive. Redline the engine and feel the power, and so it was with the judgment of the professed believers. The judgment determines by investigating the final product of each gospel, which one is the authentic gospel. There's only one that's the authentic gospel. And the Lord scrutinizes the lives of every professed believer, being fully confident that those who have received his gospel will withstand the investigation. You get that? Through this process of the investigation in the most holy place, Christ is telling the universe, look at the end product and judge them and try them and see that they're not worthy to be in heaven. Okay? A handbook of SDA Bible Commentary, volume 12. On the Day of Atonement, God examined the quality of the faith committed of his people. Those who kept their daily faith relationship with the Lord were pre preserved, and those who violated and rejected it were separated permanently. How, how were they separated? Permanently from the covenant community. God showed himself to be a loving and powerful God, able to save and to overcome the forces of sin. Thus, the Old Testament sacrificial system outlined in shadows and types the plan of redemption centered in the coming messianic redeemer. Okay? Daniel 8, we are pointed forward to when the sanctuary will be cleansed. And as we have studied the antitypical day of atonement, we see that Jesus is coming before his father, interceding for his people to gain for them the eternal inheritance. All right? In Daniel 7, we see the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. And let's go there now. Daniel chapter 7. We're going to go to verse 9. It says, And I beheld two thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. This throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands and thousands ministered on him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. And just as the high priest went into the most holy place on the day of judgment, as a representative of the people to obtain atonement for them, so Christ has entered into the presence of God as our representative to obtain salvation for us, redemption for us. So the Son of Man came before the, the Ancient of Days, and 10,000 times 10,000, defending against the attacks of the little horn and gaining for the people the eternal kingdom is what the high priest was to do. In Matthew 10, verses 32 to 33, Jesus stands as our representative our advocate before the Father, and those who confess him before men in word and deed. In word and what? Deed. He confesses before the Father. He takes their name in his mouth, and he pleads their case. In 1 John 2, verse 1, in a court of justice, a legal assistant, counsel for the defense, an advocate, one who pleads another case, an intercessor, this is the word parakletos in the Greek, 
which means in a court of justice, a legal assistant, a counsel for the defense. So let's go to John 1.21 so we could see this in its context. John chapter 1, verse... 1 John 2, sorry. 1 John 2. My mind is moving faster than my tongue or my mouth. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate. That word there is parakletos. parakletos. Okay? We have an advocate, one who stands in our defense, one who pleads our case, an intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You get that? You follow me? When you read the Bible, as you study the sanctuary, you'll start to see that the Bible is written in a sanctuary language. Everything that's said, everything is pointing to the sanctuary because it is the foundation of our faith. It is the foundation of God's government. We're told that Jesus was the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. This is the very thing that as we look at it and we study it, we start to see something very clear. Paul, that's why Peter says, careful what you read about Paul because Paul is speaking about deep things. And Paul was a Pharisee, and a Pharisee is a lawyer, right? And a lawyer of what? What was the government of the Jewish nation? It was their religion. And what was their religion based upon? The sanctuary. What was he a lawyer of? He knew the law. He understood the sacrifices and the laws and the legal system. You know, the, the civil laws, the moral laws, the health laws. He knew all these things. That's why he was a lawyer. You follow me? And Paul, when he was writing, was speaking very deep things because he was speaking about the sanctuary. And I, after you do a study in the sanctuary, read the Bible from cover to cover. And, but keep in mind the symbolism of the sanctuary. And you'll start to see things starting to pop out. Like when I study the Bible, when it says to be clean, if you were here this morning for the morning devotion, when, when it says to be clean or that they're washed, it's a symbol. There's a word that, that's talking about being sanctified, about being justified. Justification takes place in the outer court where sanctification takes place in the holy place and glorification takes place in the most holy place. And there's your words pointing to how Christ is working in our lives. You following me? And Paul, he was using these words because the Jewish people understood it. And if they understood it, how much more for us today? They understood when, when John said, Behold the Lamb of God. They understood. How many people do you call lamb today? Right? We know that the lamb represents Christ. But back then they understood the lamb meant their salvation. That was, that was the advocate for the people. And they understood what John was saying. And it's the same thing with us today. We need to understand these things. We need to understand what Christ is doing for us. I'm looking for the clicker and it's in my hand. So in the investigative judgment, the plan of redemption reaches its accomplishment in the deliverance of God's people. When does it reach its accomplishment? In the deliverance of God's people. Christ Object Lessons, page 69, says, When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. And Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of what? Where? He's waiting for the manifestation of himself 
in the church, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then, and only then, he will come to claim them as his own. You follow me? How important is it for us to manifest and produce the character of Christ in our lives? And it's nothing that we can do of ourselves. That's why Jesus says, when I return, shall I find faith? And you'll see faith very clearly is that loving, obedient, trusting, and obeying relationship of God with man. And that's why Jesus says, do you love me? Do you really love me? Then prove it. I mean, I could tell my wife and my kids, I love you. But then if I'm not taking care of my family, if I'm not there for my wife when she needs me the most, or I'm not there for my children, do I really love them? How do I show that I love them? By what I do. You ever hear your, your action speaks louder than words? Right? It's true. And it's so much truer even in our relationship with God. Because by what we do shows who we believe. By what we do shows who our allegiance was, is with. How we express ourselves outside of church shows exactly the type of people we are. It's very easy for everybody to come to church and put on the face. But when you're outside, that's when it really counts. Desire of Ages, page 671, says, The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. Where is it supposed to be reproduced? In humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. And next, the next session is called The Mystery of God. And we're going to be really fleshing that out about the mystery of God and what it really means about the perfection of the character of his people. And you're going to see exactly how God manifests his character in his people through the mystery of God. Again, in a great controversy, it says, In a time of trouble, if the people of God have unconfessed sins to appear before them, while tortured with fear and anguish, they would be overwhelmed, and despair would cut off their faith. What would cut off their faith? Despair. despair. Why do they have despair? Because of unconfessed sins, because they haven't made a relationship with God. On the Day of Atonement, these people didn't come to, to the sanctuary just because they had to come on that day. But it did, on the Day of Atonement, they wanted to make sure that throughout the year they had all their sins gathered up here in the most holy place. So that when they came on the Day of Atonement, they can be outside in complete My mind just went south. But they could be outside in complete assurance that they were, that they were gonna have a mediator to stand and mediate for them and for their sins because their sins were in the sanctuary, okay? Despair would cut off their faith and they could not have confidence to plead with God for deliverance, All right? But while they have a deep sense of their unworthiness, they have no concealed wrongs to reveal. And that's what I was just trying to bring out, is that they, they, had, they were assured, okay? They had complete insurance. Even though they knew they were unworthy, they knew that they didn't have any concealed wrongs because it was all laid up in the sanctuary. Their sins had gone beforehand to the judgment, 
and have been blotted out, and they cannot bring them to remembrance. And as the priest, in removing the sins from the sanctuary, confessed them upon the head of the scapegoat, so Christ will place all these sins upon Satan, the originator and instigator of sin. I have to tell you, who makes you sin? Who makes you sin? I heard Satan, but the truth of the matter is, the devil can't make you sin. He can tempt you, but you can't sin. And you know, there's a little precious gem in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Let's go there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Now remember, what can, the same, what can Satan do to you? He can tempt you, but he can't make you sin. And notice what 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 says. You there? It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. Who is faithful? God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. But with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So the devil brings the temptation. There's no new sin under the sun. There's no new temptation under the sun. But the devil brings it. And who's the one that gives you the power to overcome it? God. You see how God takes care of it all. But it's really leaning upon him and trusting in him that we have the key to deliverance. So the scapegoat bearing the sins of Israel was sent away onto a land not inhabited. So Satan bearing the guilt of all the sins which he has caused people, God's people to commit will be for a thousand years confined to the earth, which will then be desolate without inhabitant, and he will at that last suffer the full penalty of sin and the fires that shall destroy all the wicked. And thus the great plan of redemption will reach its accomplishment in the final eradication of sin and the deliverance of all who have been willing to renounce evil. In early writings, page 280, it says, Jesus tarried a moment in the outer apartment of the heavenly sanctuary, and the sins which had been confessed while he was in the most holy place were placed upon Satan, the originator of sin, who must suffer their punishment. So confessing the sin over the scapegoat's head corresponds with the great time of trouble. As God's people witness these closing scenes, Satan will be entering entirely rooted from their affections. You got that? Review and Herald, August 12, 1844. The time of trouble is the crucible that is to bring out Christ-like characters. What is the time of trouble? That is to bring out Christ-like characters. And what is it going to do? It's going to reveal Satan to them in his true character. And it's going to cause to be uprooted. It will uproot him entirely from their affections. Okay? Do you know that up until the cross, there were still sympathizers in heaven for the devil? Angels sympathizing for him because they did not understand the character and nature of his sin. And it wasn't until Christ was crucified that they saw the bigger picture of what it was all about. All right? And, it was com and it's the same thing with us. In Genesis 3.15, we're given the promise of the Messiah. And it says, I shall put enmity. And you know what that word enmity means? Hatred. Look it up in the, look it up in the dictionary. Bitter resentment. Bitter hatred. Do you hate sin? Some of them. You see what God is illustrating? We need to hate sin. 
We have to hate sin so much that it would make us sick, that it would make us disgusted every time we see it, every time we commit it, so much so that we wouldn't want to do it again. Why? Because it put Christ on the cross. And if you cannot lift up Christ and look at him and what he has done for you and what your sin has cost, heaven, you'll have no understanding or comprehension of what sin is doing in your life. You need to hate it and hate it so much that you don't want to do it again. And that's the whole thing. When you brought that lamb, I mean, how many of you have pets? What kind of pets do you have? Dogs, a cat, a horse, all right? Imagine you having to take your pet and kill it and then butcher it because of your sin. It got real quiet in here. But that's exactly the type of, the way that God would want you to feel about your sin. Because someone very close to you, very dear to you, even though you might not see him or understand him completely, is exactly what your sin has done. You follow me on that? Very, very serious. And it should cause you to hate it bitterly because of what your sin has driven, had, has driven you to do. For to love and cherish sin is to love and cherish its author, that deadly foe of Christ. Every time you sin, I heard this said from another, another preacher, and it was very profound, but the, the devil, Christ was tempted, correct? Three times. What was the last temptation? What was taking place? On the mountain, right? On the mountain. And what did the devil say? If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you the world. Do you know that every time we sin, you know what we're doing? We're telling Jesus, the creator of the universe, the great star breather, you have to bow down and worship me. Wow. Have you ever thought of it that way? Every time you sin, you're telling him that he has to bow down and worship you because you're doing it your way and you don't want his way. You follow that? When they excuse sin and cling to perversity of character, they gave Satan a place in their affections and pay him homage. And as a matter of fact, you're setting the devil up over Christ. So basically what you're telling Jesus is, not only does he have to bow down and worship you, but you prefer the devil over him. Every time you sin. We shall need an experience which we do not now possess and which may, many are too idle to obtain. It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the land, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. And we're going to look into this in the fourth session about righteousness. So, as an SDA church... We are a special people chosen of God. We are a movement called for a purpose. Now that doesn't mean that we are greater than any other, anyone else out there. We should be asking God what he wants us to do. My prayer is that when you leave here, you'll have an understanding of our identity as a Seventh-day Adventist. Last week I had someone come up to me and say, they met someone that was already keeping the Sabbath, so they, they must be a, they're almost a Seventh-day Adventist. And friends, I have to tell you, the Sabbath is not what makes us a distinct 
as a movement. Did you know that? The sanctuary is not, the Sabbath is not why we catch the opposition that we do. The reason that we catch the flack that we do is because of the sanctuary message and that we believe that we are the remnant people of God. None could fail to see if the earthly sanctuary was, this is from the great controversy, none could fail to see that if the earthly sanctuary is a figure of pattern of the heavenly, the law deposited in the ark on earth was an exact transcript of the law in the ark in heaven, and that an acceptance of the truth concerning the heavenly sanctuary involved an acknowledgement of the claims of God's law and the obligation of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. Here was the secret of the bitter and determined opposition to the harmonious exposition of the scriptures that revealed the menstruation of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Men sought to close the door which God had opened and to open the door which, God, which he had closed. But he had opened and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth, had declared, Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. Christ had opened the door or menstruation of the most holy place. Light was shining from the open door of the sanctuary in heaven, and the fourth commandment was shown to be included in the law, which there is enshrined. What God has established, no man can overthrow. You see, the Sabbath and the sanctuary go together. You know, I ask people all the time, you know, when I do a study on the sanctuary, I mean on the Sabbath, and people say, well, I don't see the relevance of the law. You know, what's the big deal? And then I ask them, and I'm asking you, which God do you worship? Which God do you worship? And how do you know that you're worshiping the right God? Check this out. The first commandment tells us to worship one God. Right? What does the second commandment tell us to do? Not to make any images of that God or bow down and worship them, right? The third commandment tells us not to take the name of, name of your God in vain. So we have three commandments that tells us to worship a God. But the fourth commandment, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, tells us who the God is that we worship, why we worship him, and when we worship him. Do you get why that's so important? You know, to do away with the law, I want you to picture this for a minute. Everybody here agrees with me that there's a heavenly sanctuary, right? All right, so to do away with the law, you will have to travel through space to where heaven is, okay? And when you get there, you have to wrestle the angels from the gates, okay? Then you have to march down the streets of gold where there's millions and millions of angels that you, then you could get, into the, get to the heavenly sanctuary. Then when you get to the heavenly sanctuary, you have to drive yourself into the presence of God. You follow me? Drive yourself in the presence of God. And when you manage to do that, you have to wrestle the two covering cherubs away from the seat. The, the, the mercy seat of God. You have to take God up off of his throne and throw him to the side to pick up mercy and cast that to the side in order to get to the law of God to do away with it. That's a pretty small task. But, <laughs> you know, but think of it. Isn't that, I mean, that's what people are saying when the law is done away with. The law is the very foundation of God's government. And if they don't understand the prophetic message and the movement of the SDA church, then they have not understood what God is trying to, to get across. Right? Elder K knows not what spirit he is. He is uniting his influence with the dragon host to oppose those who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus. He has a hard warfare before him. He was a Sabbath keeper. 
There are many Sabbath keepers out there besides the Seventh-day Adventist church. You follow me. All right, you have the Church of God. What is the Church of God? The Seventh-day Baptist, and there's a, there's a, a couple of other offshoots. And they do keep the Sabbath, right? Oppose those who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus. He has a hard wherefore against them. As far as the Sabbath is concerned, he occupies the same position as the Seventh-day Baptist. Separate the Sabbath from the message and it loses its power. What do you do when you separate the Sabbath from the message? It loses its power. But when connected with the message of the third angel, a power attends it which convicts unbelievers and infidels and brings them out with strength to stand, to live, grow, and flourish in the Lord. That's from Testimonies, Volume 1, page 337. If they do not understand the prophetic message and a movement of the SDA church is because they don't understand what God is trying to get across. God bids us give our time and our strength and the work of preaching to the people the message that stirred men and women in 1843 and 1844. I mean, we're talking about people that sold their jobs, their, their livelihood, their farms, their homes. They cut away with everything that they could be ready for the second coming of Christ. And they were earnestly searching the scriptures. They were pleading and praying that their sins were confessed. And what are we doing today? Facebook, right? Or, or watching the dog whisper or, or whatever other crazy stuff. I don't have a TV at home, but I, some of the people I study with, they talk about some of these programs. You know, what are we doing today? We are in the day of judgment. Christ is cleansing the sanctuary from sin. And where is your sin? Is it with you or is it in the sanctuary where Christ is cleansing it? You follow what I'm saying? How important is it for us to have that transformation in our lives? The message was that the judgment is standing at the door. And that's why in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? It not only means that he's knocking at the door of your heart, but I truly believe Revelation chapter 3 talks about the people adjudged. And it's the message for us today. We're Laodiceans. We're asleep. We think that we have everything and we're okay because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. You know what? You're not saved because you're a Seventh-day Adventist. You're not saved by the profession of your faith. You're saved by your relationship with Jesus Christ. And he tells you what you need to do. He says, you're miserable, you're blind, you're poor, you're naked. But I'm telling you what you need to get from me. You need to buy from me gold. You need to buy from me eye salve and raiment. You know, Christ is telling us that these are the things we need. And he's standing there at the door. We hear the footsteps of an approaching king. And where are we today? Are we in the most holy place with Christ? Are we laying everything down at his feet and surrendering all, dying to self, that Jesus could live in us? Or are we just tiptoeing and dancing around? That's the question I have for you today. And it is a solemn, very solemn time that we live in. And we need to search the message that stirred the hearts of the people in 1843 and 44 that we can exhibit and establish that type of zeal that they had in our lives. What are we doing with our faith? And that's what I meant by tiptoeing around and dancing around, is we're playing with our salvation. A salvation that cost heaven dearly. And the sanctuary message tells us very clearly that we need to be in the most holy place with Christ. That's where our sins need to be. And we need to be 
afflicting our souls. He's not telling us that we need to be sad. The people were anticipating the cleansing of the sanctuary. They were anticipating being free from sin and right with God. How many of you want to be right with God? Amen. We need to be examining ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Then we need to be preaching those messages to others. All right. Is there any questions? I'll take about 10 minutes. Any questions? Praise God. Everybody understood it? Yes. Veil. John 14, verse 6. You know, when you look at the sanctuary, it's the same text. The footsteps of Christ. Jesus paid it on the cross. A lot of people say, well, this represents the cross, right? That's what a lot of people say. Where did Jesus die? Where was he crucified? I thought you guys said you studied the sanctuary. Where did Jesus die? Where was he crucified? Outside the gates on Golgotha. Where was Golgotha located according to the city? On the north side of the city, right? Where was the lamb killed in the sanctuary? North side. The altar represents the separating of, separation of sin from the sinner. The crucible, remember the crucible, the fire that we go through? Purging us from our sin. That's what that's a symbol of. The burning of the fat, the burning away of the fat is where you find that symbol here. The labor, right? We know is, is the representation of, the, of baptism. But then we come in here, Jesus says that I am the way, right? If we walk a straight line from one end to the other, Jesus says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth, right? I am the truth, the word of God. Thy word is truth, right? Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. And Jesus says that I am the light of the world. You be the light of the world, right? Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. And what is the path to the throne of God? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is our intercessor, right? The one that intercedes on our behalf, and he is our judge, right? He's our advocate, our high priest, who's pleading for us on behalf of fallen man. And another question that you guys will come across if you're doing studies is, well, if Jesus is in the most holy place, then how could he still be interceding on behalf of man because he's here cleansing the sanctuary from judgment. I don't know some of the... Has anybody ever got that question before? No? That how is it that Jesus, if he's in the most holy place, could still be serving as high priest in the, in the holy place? Right? And I'm going to show you something. In the Ark of the Covenant, do you remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant? What else? And what else? Rod, manna, and what else? Law, and there was one other piece of furniture that went into the most holy place on the day of judgment. 
by the sensor. All right, what does the rod represent? All right. Pay real close attention. I'm gonna, this is very, very simple. What pieces of furniture are in the most holy place? In the holy place, I mean. What's the pieces of furniture that are in a holy place? What represents what? Represents, let's just put it here. Bread. As a matter of fact, what was it made of? I mean, what were they, what were they getting fed out of in the wilderness? Manna, right? And Jesus says that I am the bread of life. All right? John chapter 6. But then you have the altar of incense, right? And where and the altar of incense that was representation of the the censer. Okay? And the lampstand, what was the lampstand representation of? What did they what did they mold it and fashion it into be? A candlestick, but was what was the knops and plants and everything that it, that was on it? It was from an almond tree. What was Aaron's rod? An almond. You know what almond means? It means to hasten. Okay? So when, when, the, high, most, when the high priest entered the most holy place, he brought the holy place with him that he can officiate for the people. You got that? Aaron's rod, which represents the candlestick, the manna, which represents the table of showbread, the law of God, which is the foundation of of the sanctuary and the censer, which was the prayers of the people. Are there any other questions? I'm going to come up with more of that stuff. <laughs> That's a really good point that you make. <laughs> Because we're going to talk about that in Daniel chapter, chapter 7. Actually, chapter 8. Um, are there any other questions about that? Do you understand what was taking place in the investigative judgment, which is really important that you understand? Do you understand that? The investigative judgment, what's taking place? Yes? No? Okay. All right. That's where Christ is today. All right. That's right. Does that how you understand it? Yes. Your name needs to be in the book of life in order for... In order for your name to be in the book of life, you must accept Jesus as your Savior. That's right. So as we're going out into the neighborhoods talking to people, one of the big reasons that we're pushing for this is so their names get into that book. It's part of salvation. I mean, justification is, is just the work that Christ has done on our behalf, right? And that's what's the work in the outer court, what Jesus has done for us. The holy place represents what Christ is doing through us. But that part of that is what I was talking about this morning in devotions, was that what is the, if I force you to read the word of God, what does that benefit you? Do, is that really going to benefit at all? No. If I'm forcing you to do something, then there is, no, there is no desire to continue to do it. Because the minute that you, don't, you have the chance not to do it, you're not going to do it. And it's the same thing with prayer. And, and the candlestick, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. You be the light of the world. A, a candle cannot hide itself. It needs to be set upon a mountain, right? That all may see it. 
okay? If you ever drive on, on these back roads at night and, and you look out into the dark and you just see the one light that could be 20 miles away, but that's what Jesus is illustrating. This world is a dark place and we need to be the light that Christ is reflecting through us to the people. And part of that means that we need to be sharing our faith with other people. And salvation is, is part of that, this process here that takes place in the holy place is sharing our faith and, and but loving to do it you love to talk about somebody you know if if when you first ladies when you first met your husbands to be where did you just say did you hide it or did you tell everybody that you found the man of your life right same thing with the guys right are you going to hide it or are you going to show it and it's the same thing with jesus if you really love him you're going to let people know isn't that true and that's what jesus was illustrating in the holy place is that it's, it's a loving relationship by allowing Christ to work everything out through us. It's coming to Christ and surrendering all. That's why Paul says that I die daily. And it is not I that live, but Christ who lives in me. Yet I live, but it is Christ who liveth in me. Right? And this is where this is taking place. And Paul was illustrating these things in the sanctuary. Does, does that make sense? You have any other questions? You know, the, the next session is going to be start to open up a little bit more. They only gave me a couple more minutes, but we're going to be talking about the mystery of God. And the mystery of God, you'll we'll find if you want to just read up on it before you come back to class, is in Daniel, I mean, Revelation chapter 10. And you'll see, as you read that, you'll see where it says that at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the seventh angel, I mean, then the mystery of God shall be finished. And those are the next two classes that we're going to be dwelling on quite, quite a bit on the mystery of God because this is where the mystery of God is finished and we, this is where we need to be as a people in this holy place are there any other questions you guys are a really easy group <laughs> alright let us bow our heads for a word of prayer Father God in heaven we thank you so much for bringing us here for showing us what is needed of us in our characters and in our lives that we may separate sin from our lives, Father, and that we be in the most holy place where our sins need to be, where you are cleansing our sins today. Help us, Father, to search our hearts and our minds. Help us, Father, to be set apart for a holy use through the power of your indwelling spirit in our lives. Help us, Father, to reflect upon the message, messages that you give us in the Bible that are present truth. And that we may, that not only do we study these words, but that we apply it to our lives. May we truly hate sin so much that we'll separate it from our lives, Father. That we may be like Jesus because Jesus is dwelling in us. That when people look upon us, they could say, if all you need to do is show us, show us Jesus and we'll believe. And we could be just like Jesus had said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we should be able to say the same thing that if you see us, you see Jesus in us. And Lord, we pray that you be with us throughout this, this weekend of, of revival. Lord, revive the spirit in us like, you, that, like it was in 1844. People heart-searching, people willing to separate from the world that there will be nothing between their soul and the Savior, and that we're being prepared for your soon coming. May we, too, be ready for your soon coming, Lord. And may, as we study out the sanctuary throughout the rest of this weekend, Lord, may we truly, truly grow 
in a faith relationship with you that will be ready when you come in your clouds of glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.